want to invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Revelation chapter 20. We are drawing towards the end of this book, and uh, today we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 of Revelation chapter 20. Back in 1937, the English author J.R.R. Tolkien published his children's fantasy novel entitled The Hobbit, There and Back Again. Some of you uh, have probably read it. Perhaps more of you have watched the the three movies based on The Hobbit uh, put out by Peter Jackson in 2012, 2013, and 2014. Uh, The central character in The Hobbit is a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins, kind of a homebody, who finds himself thrust into an adventure, a quest. Together with a company of dwarves, he sets off to recover uh, treasure that the dwarf... Dwarfs lost many years ago when a dragon smog uh, took over, destroyed their kingdom, and, and took over their vast treasures under the Lonely Mountain, uh, which that dragon continued to guard jealously. Now as the story unfolds, Bilbo and the company reach the Lonely Mountain, and Bilbo, as a hobbit, uh, his role is to, to kind of be the thief. He, he, he manages to go into the lair, and he, he steals a gold cup. And Smog, in his fury, uh, goes out and he, he begins to destroy Lake Town, convinced that Lake Town has helped this, this hobbit and these dwarfs. And Lake Town is burning, it is being destroyed. And another character that we're introduced to, Bard the Bowman, with his very last arrow. Uh, some of you in the movie, you can maybe picture the scene. He's up on a tower and, and it's, it's uh, the... the, the uh, Bow is already ruined, and so his son is standing there in front of him, and he pulls it back over his son's shoulder, and, and as smog flies up at him, he lets that final arrow go, and it hits the mark, the one spot on smog's chest where he's unprotected by scales, and, and the dragon is killed. The dragon is defeated. The, uh, the town is saved from... What, what, the, 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 what's left of the town is saved from smog with his defeat. This morning we come to a portion in the Revelation that tells a similar story. It's a story of the defeat of a dragon, uh, the defeat of the dragon, the dragon that opposes God and all that is good, uh, the defeat of the dragon who stands behind the suffering of the church, the church to whom John writes. Now before we move into our text, a few things. Uh, We're coming towards the end of the Revelation uh, of Jesus, about Jesus. Remember, this is... This is from Jesus. It is the revelation of him, but it is a revelation about him. We learn about Jesus. The the curtains are pulled back, and we see Jesus in his glory and his might. John is in exile. John, now an old man in his 80s, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, has been deposited by the Roman Empire on the uh, volcanic lump of rock that is Patmos. And there, on the Lord's day as he worships, he hears a voice, and he turns to see the voice And there he beholds Jesus in his glory, the exalted Christ. And Jesus commissions him to to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. That is, seven churches scattered around the the, uh, Roman province of Asia on an ancient postal route. Uh, The year is likely right around the mid-90s, 96 AD. Domitian is enthroned as the emperor of Rome. Uh, The empire is at the height of its might and its glory. And the cult of the emperor, that is this movement to worship the the emperors as Lord and Savior, is flourishing. 
in the province of Asia. As I've been noting, the Revelation is a discipleship manual. Within these pages, Jesus wants to prepare his followers for what they are about to face. On the horizon is a period of great suffering for all who remain faithful, for all who refuse to worship the emperor as Lord and Savior. So Jesus wants to warn them. He wants to prepare them. Not only that, but some of them are not not ready for what is to come. Some have compromised with the harlot. They have compromised with Rome. And so Jesus calls them to faithfulness, calls them to readiness to prepare them for this great season of suffering uh, that is coming, even death. Now, the last number of chapters, chapters 15 to 18, we have been presented with visions of God's coming judgment upon Rome. This human political entity that is opposed to God's people, at whose hands God's people have and will suffer. We saw a vision of a a harlot representing Rome, the city, riding on the scarlet beast that ends up being destroyed by the very powers that animated her. We, we saw a vision of the kings of the earth and the beast, and, and, sorry, the kings of the earth and the merchants and the merchant marine uh, weeping. Those who had benefited from Rome's oppressive economic policies and practices weeping as they observe and see Rome burning. The next thing revealed in the vision was a, this vision of a great multitude in heaven worshiping God, praising God. Remember the fourfold hallelujah. And then last week we came to the last part of Revelation 19, a passage that I said uh, then is often referred to as the last battle. In it, we watched as Jesus, the ultimate fighter Jesus, shows up on this white, white war horse, riding out of heaven with the armies of heaven, dressed also on white horses, dressed in bright and fine linen. Uh, they're riding out to battle, and the beast from the sea and, and the kings of the earth gather to wage war against Jesus and the armies of heaven. But the war was never fought. Jesus wins simply by showing up. The portion of the revelation that we come to today is, if you will, the last battle part two. It really continues what we began to look at last week. And almost certainly, in fact, without any doubts, I have, that the portion of the revelation that we come to today is the most debated and disputed, disagreed about portion in the whole of Revelation. It is a passage about the millennium, about this thousand-year reign of Jesus. Now, we're going to say much more about that. I'll say more about that shortly. But for the moment, why don't we turn to the text, and I will read Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want to begin this morning as we walk through and explore this text by reflecting with you on a reality that for most of us, I would suspect, maybe not all of us, but most of us face, and that is that we, we come to this text with baggage. What do I mean by baggage? Well, our past experiences shape how we view this, how we read this. For example, just an illustration, Chrislene and I, when we were dating and engaged uh, over those months, had various conversations. And I, I don't recall uh, particularly how this one came up, but we had a conversation about divorce. Uh, Chrislene grew up, uh, her parents uh, had, had a solid marriage. She, she grew up in an intact family. And she expressed to me that divorce is not an option. Now, uh, hear me out, I, I grew up in a family where my, my parents got divorced. I was 16 when they split up. And so I came at that from a bit of a different perspective. I said, of course, it's an option. It's an option. Everyone knows it's an option. It's an option that, that we will never choose. It's an option I will never choose. Well, for Christine, hearing me say that, hey, divorce is an option, that's where she kind of stopped hearing and thought, oh. And, and early on in our marriage, in fact, had all kinds of nightmares about me leaving. Well, he said divorce was an option. It, it, it was just, we came to that topic with our own baggage, with our own experiences in tow. And so for me, it wasn't that it's an option I'm going to choose, but, but it's a reality. I've seen it. I've lived it. And so we, we came at that differently. When we come to this text, we come, most of us, some of you perhaps are in the blissful state of ignorance, and that might be a benefit. If you haven't heard lots about this and you haven't seen all the charts that people put out about trying to figure this out, you may come at this with blissful ignorance, and, and, and that's a cool spot to be, and hopefully you, you, you won't leave here in that same spot. Uh, but many of us come with baggage. We've, we've heard things. We've heard explanations of this. We, we have different ideas of how this works, and so we, we can easily read that into the text. And so that's one challenge that many of us this morning will face. Um, what I want to do, we, we want to do our best to come to this text fresh and read it on its own terms. But I, I do want to take a moment just to, to sketch out for you uh, the main approaches uh, that we, we find within church and church history to uh, this text, specifically to this notion of the millennium, this, this thousand years. Uh, this thousand-year reign. Now, uh, just a quick note, uh, this is the only place in the whole of Scripture that we encounter uh, this talk of a millennium, of 1,000-year of period. Only here, six times it's mentioned in this text, but it's only here. It's the only place we'll find it, and so that's something to bear in mind. Uh, now, at risk of oversimplifying, there are three primary approaches or positions when it comes to the millennium, the thousand years. Uh, one of them is called uh, premillennialism. 
Uh, according to this view, uh, Jesus is going to return to earth, uh, at which point history will not come to an end. He's going to return to earth, and he is going to uh, strip Satan of his power, and he's going to establish a, a, a kingdom, a, his reign on earth for a period of a thousand years. Together with the saints, uh, they will rule. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released briefly, try once more to destroy humanity, to destroy God's good creation, take over the world. He will be defeated. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. The rest of humanity will be raised uh, to face God's judgment. So premillennialism, that is, uh, Jesus will return before the thousand years. And, and generally, those who take this approach believe this is a literal thousand-year uh, reign. Now, there is a second approach, which is called postmillennialism. According to this view, Jesus will come back after a thousand years. That is, right now, at some point in time, this thousand years, and it may or may not be a literal thousand years, uh, this will begin. It will be a, a, a period of history unlike any other. Uh, the gospel will bear fruit like never before. The church will live faithfully as God's kingdom people, and, and the, the world will be powerfully influenced and transformed through the ministry of the church during this thousand-year period. There will be great transformation, at the end of which Christ will return. Now, there is a third approach called amillennialism. In the Greek language, if you want to negate a word, negate an idea, you put the letter alpha at the beginning of it. So amillennialism is simply saying no millennium, and that's not doing away with it, but rather amillennialism says this is not a literal thousand-year reign thousand years here is a symbol, not a statistic. Uh, thus, it stresses the fact that the New Testament as a whole, as we read it, uh, really teaches and reveals to us that there is, there is one return of Christ at which time history as we know it will be brought to its conclusion, that that's one final event all uh, that will take place in a moment. Now, those are three of the major uh, views or approaches, and there's all kinds of variation within them. Before I make explicit to you what you may already be guessing regarding the approach that I take, let me say a couple things. Uh, there are many godly, sincere students of the Scriptures who hold to each of these approaches. Men and women who love Jesus, who desire to rightly understand God's Word and live faithfully in light of that understanding. Now, I want to be very respectful this morning, even where I profoundly disagree with how some people approach this or interpret this text. Too often disagreements on things like this have served to divide the church, to divide the pe people of God, and, and that is not my desire. Uh, but we do need to, to take one of these approaches, and, and I want to uh, suggest that, that what I present, what I, what I hope to present is a compelling vision or understanding, interpretation of this text in light of all that we've seen through our journey through Revelation, that, that what we look at, what I, what I share this morning would stand at, together with that. And, and, I, and I want to present it humbly, and, and I, I don't claim to have the final word on this text. I, I want to give everyone freedom to disagree. Uh, we can debate this uh, at some point. Now, of the three basic approaches to millennialism, uh, to the millennium, I take the amillennial position. That is, I, I don't believe this text is talking about a, a literal 1,000-year reign uh, that will happen. Uh, rather, I believe that this 1,000 years is, is a symbol. 
It's not a statistic. Just like all the other numbers that we've encountered in Revelation, uh, why would we suddenly change our approach to that here? Uh, Remember back in chapter 5 when we were introduced to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, he was described as having seven eyes and seven horns. Do we expect that when we see Jesus, when he returns, that, that we will see Jesus with seven eyes and seven horns? No, that, that was, those were symbols. They were pointing to his authority, to his, his uh, knowledge of all things. In, in chapter 7, John uh, heard a number, a number of those who were sealed, those who were marked as belonging to God, and, and he heard the number 144,000. Is that saying that there are only 144,000 people who will be saved, or is that speaking of a literal 144,000, a subset of the redeemed? I contended, no, that, that 144 is 12 times 12, that 12 tribes and 12 apostles, uh, that times 10, the number of completeness, times 10 again, times 10, that, that 144,000 is a symbol for the whole people of God. And in the, in the vision that follows immediately after that, John looks and he sees this multitude that is without number. He can't count it. 144,000, I said, I contend is, is an image. It is a symbol. In chapter 11, we read of God's two witnesses who will prophesy for 1,260 days, that is, for uh, 42 months or three and a half years, while the Gentiles trample on the holy city for 42 months. Are those references to a literal three and a half years? I I contended and would maintain that, that no, that that period is to be understood as a period of the church, the period between Christ's coming and Christ's coming again. So we have seen throughout the book of Revelation that numbers function like lots of the other images as images, as symbols, and I would suggest that to go in a different direction suddenly here would be wrong-headed. Daryl Johnson writes this, uh, we, we, we would have interpretive chaos. It needs to be either or all the way through the book, and so I think it makes uh, very good sense to understand this number, this millennium, as a symbol. Now, I want to approach our text as best we can on its own terms. And so as we do that, uh, let me remind you of a few things. As we've been studying this, I have been telling you, reminding you, that this is not a crystal ball predicting uh, future, the history, if you will, in advance. Rather, this is a discipleship manual. Uh, These are words that Jesus gave to the church in the Roman province of Asia in a period of history when they were about to find themselves under the crushing weight of Rome as they lived faithfully for Jesus. And so this is God's word to them. I've said this over and over. This is God's word to them first before it's God's word to us. We need to understand uh, what was Jesus saying to those believers if we want to understand clearly what Jesus is saying to us. Now to that end, let's think about a couple things. Uh, These believers are living in a time where some have already begun to suffer. In one church, Antipas in Pergamum has already been killed, probably the pastor of that church. Uh, There is this great holocaust that is coming upon the church. We know that, that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of believers would lose their lives in this season. And so Jesus wants to to warn them uh, to remain faithful. That if they refuse to to participate in the cult of the emperor, if they refuse to ascribe to Domitian, uh, that Domitian is Lord and Savior, if they refuse that, if they don't participate in the oppressive economics of of Rome, they're going to find themselves suffering. They're going to find themselves oppressed. They may even find themselves losing their lives. 
Jesus aims to encourage them, to challenge them to resist the temptation to compromise, to, to, to challenge them to remain faithful to him. Now, in the paragraphs that preceded this, in the, in the text that we looked at last week, we saw a vision, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, a vision of a great multitude praising God, declaring praise to him, hallelujah, fourfold hallelujah. And then last week we saw this vision of this this great battle scene, if you will. Jesus riding out of heaven on this white war horse, right? With a sword coming out of his mouth. The king of kings and lord of lords tattooed up his leg. The armies of heaven following him. He encounters the beast and the kings of the earth, those who have opposed the church. And the battle's not fought. The beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of, the fire, lake of fire. The kings of the earth are just, they're, they're struck dead, and the carrion birds come and feast on their flesh. The war isn't fought. Now, think with me, verses 1 to 3 of our text. Think with me. If you are a first century believer living in the Roman province of Asia, maybe you're from Pergamum, where someone in your church has already been killed by Rome. You've been listening. Like, understand this. We, we go through this section by section. When the revelation would have first arrived in these churches, they would not have read ten verses and said, okay, come back next week, and in about four months we'll be done the book. They would have, they would have watched the whole movie at once, right? They would have sat and they would have heard this word of prophecy read. They would, have, they would have seen in their, their mind's eye the, the drama of Revelation unfold. So, so if you are sitting in that church in the province of, of Asia, hearing this drama, the beast and the false prophet, that is the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth and the kings of the earth, they're all gone. The, the beasts in the lake of fire, the kings of the earth devoured by carrion birds. But what's missing? What still needs to happen? In the drama of the Revelation, what's missing? The dragon. The dragon still needs to be defeated. The dragon still needs to be taken down. Remember the dragon that we met in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon who stood before this pregnant woman, remember, dressed in the sun, standing on the moon, 12 stars on her head, about to give birth to a male child. And the dragon stood there to devour Christ, to destroy Jesus, to 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 overthrow God's purposes and plans, and yet he failed. And we saw him in his fury standing on the edge of the sea, filled with fury, ready to wage war on God's people. And he waged that war through two agents, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. And they've been dealt with, but they're still the dragon. What do we do with the dragon? As a listener to this story, this drama... You recognize that something is yet missing. And it is precisely that matter that is addressed here in, in this text, particularly here in, the, in these first opening verses. The binding of the dragon or Satan. Listen again as I, as I read. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding his hand, in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Let, let me speak quickly. I said earlier that the thousand years, I believe, is a symbol, not a statistic. Let me explain what I think that symbol is. 
I believe that that thousand years that we'll read about in this text, six times it's mentioned here, I believe that that is a symbol for the, the age of the church. And, and I'll, I'll explain this more as we go forward. But what I mean is, between the time of Christ's incarnation, his, his life, His death, His resurrection and ascension, and the time of Christ coming again, that is the age of the church. And I believe that this thousand years is a symbol for that, and, and I trust that you'll see that here as we move forward. Here we see Satan bound during the thousand years. Now, what would this then mean? What, what this would mean then is that right now, during this interim period between Christ coming and Christ coming again, that Satan is bound, chained, locked in the abyss, our text says, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. It does not mean that Satan is, is inactive. He works through his agents but let me remind you of a story that we encounter in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Jesus' ministry has just begun. He has already healed a number of people. He has been casting out demons. And in Mark chapter 3, he, is, is, uh, he encounters teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law accuse Jesus of casting out Satan, casting out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebub. And what does Jesus do in response? He shares a parable. He shares a story. He says that you cannot go into a strong man's house and plunder it, steal from him, unless you first go and you bind up the strong man. Once you come and bind up the strong man, then you can plunder his house. Jesus is saying that in his ministry, in his coming, he has bound Satan and he is setting people free. That every time Jesus heals or specifically casts out a demon, that is evidence that Satan has been bound. Jesus is the stronger one. Jesus is the one who has come and bound him. It's the exact same word in both Mark 3 and here. Satan has been tied up. He has been bound. Daryl Johnson says this. It's, it's, it's not that... It's not that Satan is ineffective or not at work in our world, but he is limited. He is on a leash. Daryl Johnson says, says this, The dragon is bound, but from the abyss he orchestrates deception through the beasts. It's like the mafia lords, although they are in prison, bound, somehow they carry out their work through agents outside the prison. I would contend that this text shows us that Satan is on a leash. He's already bound, that he cannot deceive in the same way that he once could, that, that he is losing his grip, that, that as the gospel is proclaimed around the world, as men and women, young and old, uh, repent and turn and give their lives to Jesus, that we are seeing evidence, a sign after sign after sign, that Satan is bound, that he does not have free reign, that he is on a leash. He knows that his time is short. He knows that his end is near. This reference to Satan one day being set free for a short time, can this not be readily understood as a reference to the fact that before the end finally comes, before Christ's return to wind up history, that things will get worse, that, that there will be one last desperate assault by the evil one and all those who align themselves with him? As we move into the next paragraph of our text, we encounter several key ideas, key themes we encounter things like thrones. We see the martyrs, those who have been beheaded because of their faithfulness to Jesus, their testimony to Him. Those who have remained faithful, those who did not worship the beast or receive His mark. We hear the language of first resurrection and second death. 
And we encounter this idea of reigning with Christ. Uh, What in the world is this all about? What's going on here? I would contend that what we see here in the drama of the Revelation is a picture of something that could have been a tremendous encouragement to those believers who are about to suffer. Put yourself in their place. Rome is about to come down on you. The kings of the earth are about to come down. You're going to feel the wrath of the beast. That is Rome. You're going to feel the fury of the dragon. And here is this picture. What I would suggest we are seeing here is is a vision of a great reversal. A, A great reversal. Those who have been killed, those who have lost their heads because of their faith, are resurrected to life. And, and, and they will rule, they will reign, they will be on thrones with Christ. Uh, think, think with me. In, in John's Gospel, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. Uh, we regularly speak about life in Christ as in we have been made alive. We have received the gift of eternal life. Uh, in, in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus to de- from, the, from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This talk of resurrection... Uh, Jesus is giving this word to believers who are about to suffer, who are feeling the weight of those who sit on thrones. And Jesus says, hang on, you're going to experience resurrection. You're going to experience life. You will reign on on thrones with Christ. There will be a great reversal. There will be this amazing reversal. Not only are we alive in Christ, but, but here are those who have aligned themselves with Jesus and they are said to reign with Christ. We read this in Ephesians 2.6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2, if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Already, those who are in Christ are experiencing eternal life. Already, Scripture tells us that we are living the life of the future now. And though though we may die physically, we yet live. That already we reign with Christ. That we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Uh, we read this and, and, and we, we ask questions like, okay, over whom did they reign? Where did they reign? On heaven? On, on earth? But the reality is those are, those are our questions. Those are not the questions that John's concerned with. Those are not the matters that I would suggest Jesus is seeking to answer. Jesus wants to encourage His people. He wants to show that their vindication is certain. That there will be this great reversal. That those who are on thrones reigning right now won't be there, but the ones who are being crushed, you will reign with Christ. Those who lose their lives, who who are beheaded for their faithfulness to Jesus, will live. This is a great reversal. We read on, verse 7 to 10, what we discover in this last part of our text is not unlike what we encountered in last week's text. This gathering for battle. Let me read again verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are over, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever." We find this interesting reference to Gog and Magog. If you do a little bit of digging, you'll discover that that is a reference to two chapters in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, What we discover as we read those chapters is that Gog of the land of Magog is this king who, who raises up nations, seven nations, to wage war against God's people unprovoked, come to destroy the people of God. But what happens in Ezekiel is that God opposes Gog. And what happens there happens here. See, here Satan, the dragon, gathers the nations of the earth, this vast army, the sand of the seashore, is its numbers. They, they gather around the camp of God's people. Here, here's the second battle scene about to happen. But again, the battle doesn't happen. Fire comes from heaven. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. The nations are destroyed. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. We see this victory, this vision of of the victory of God over the forces of evil and against the evil one, against the dragon. As a believer in... The Roman province of Asia, you're listening to this drama saying, well, what's going to happen to the dragon? And here you see it. The dragon, he's defeated too. He's thrown in a lake of fire too. The battle is not fought because it's already been won at the cross. When Christ came and laid down his life for humanity, he suffered in our place so that through faith in him we might be brought to life, that we might reign with him, that we might be adopted as his daughters, as his sons. The victory, the decisive victory was won at the cross. And since the, cro- the time of the cross, Christ is victorious. All that happens now, all that is to come, is simply a mopping up exercise. So what did this mean in the first century? What does it mean for us? I want to contend that this is about theology, not chronology. Uh, uh, here we see, in, in conjunction with last week's text, we, we see two battles. Are, are, are there two battles? There's, there's, there's the beast from the sea and the false prophet and the kings of the earth gather against Christ and, and the redeemed. Here we see the dragon, Satan, and the nations from the corners of four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather to fight. It's, it's just not two battles. It's just one battle told in two parts. And in the middle of that is this vision of what it means to live as God's people. In this season when Satan is bound, where he is limited, still at work, and there will be one final desperate assault on all that is good and on on God's people, but he is limited. And already as God's people, we are alive. We have resurrected life, life eternal, and we reign with Christ already. And Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. See, last week the beast and the false prophet are Conquered and thrown in the lake of fire. This, this week, the dragon is thrown in the lake of fire. Next week, 
death and Hades thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, God is cleaning up. He's clearing, clearing the way for his new creation, for this glorious picture of redemption in, in the glory that awaits all those who align themselves with Christ. So what should we take away from this text? How should it impact our lives this week? How should it impact our lives moving forward as the people of God? For those of us who are in Christ, three things. First, we need to be reminded already that Jesus Christ reigns, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that, that the, the, the final battle, the decisive victory was already won at the cross, and Jesus already reigns. He reigns now as King and Lord. His reign began with the incarnation, with His death on the cross, His resurrection. He conquered Satan. He conquered evil. God became a man in flesh showed up and took on Satan and his agents of evil. And so we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that no matter what we see happening, no matter what the news says, no matter how we might suffer, no matter what freedoms we may lose as God's people, Think of our brothers and sisters in places in the world where they are even right now in these moments in prison, being tortured. Perhaps some even in these moments being put to death. Already Jesus reigns. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The battle is not in question. It has been won at the cross. Second, already Satan is in some way bound. Uh, though he remains active in our world through his agents, Though we certainly don't live in a place where his, his influence is gone, he is, this text would tell us, Jesus would tell us, that Satan is already bound, he is on a leash. And, and what that means is that as we live faithfully as his followers, as we proclaim Christ, as we see men and women, young and old, bow their knee to Jesus and repent and put their faith in him, we see evidence again and again and again that Satan is losing his grip, that Satan has lost his battle, that, that even now Satan is bound. And so we have great hope and confidence as we live on mission for Jesus. And third, already... Already we live the life of the future. Already we reign. Through faith in Jesus, we have been made alive now. Even if we face death, we will live. We, we reign with Christ already now. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. These are the spiritual realities, the spiritual truths that Jesus in this book pulls back the curtain so we can see what is really real, what is really true, what is already true. We are victorious. So no matter what it might appear like, there is this great reversal that is already true just behind the veil. And any moment Christ can come and he'll pull that open and, and, and what we know now in our minds and in our hearts will become sight. For any who are here with us physically on sight or with us online who are not in Christ, you've not repented, you've not put your faith in Jesus, you've not aligned your life with Christ. The invitation throughout the revelation has been consistent. This, this invitation to come to Christ, to repent, and to worship the Lamb who was slain and the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. What has become clear is that everyone worships someone. We worship the Lamb and the one on the throne, or we worship the beast and the dragon. 
Everyone worships someone, and this invitation continually comes to us. Come and worship the one who gave himself for you. The one who bled and died in your place. Come, repent, and believe the good news. In closing, let me say this. I have contended through this series that the Revelation is a discipleship manual, not a crystal ball. This is not about satisfying our curiosity about how the world will end. So we shouldn't look to this document to try and figure out those details. That's not the point. Jesus is giving these words to his followers in 96 AD about to suffer this great holocaust. It is an urgent track to prepare them for what is coming, to call them to faithfulness, to to warn them of the dangers of compromise, and to encourage them to, to remain faithful to the end. So my words to you, don't try and figure out how the world's going to end, but be ready for the one who will come back and bring this world to an end. Be ready. Be faithful. Have courage. Have confidence. Live out the hope that is ours. Let this book paint this, this picture. Let the drama of Revelation inspire you to live faithfully for Jesus who gave himself for you, knowing that though we can't see it with our physical eyes, knowing the truth that already we live, already we reign, already Christ is king, and already Satan is bound. And so we have hope. We have hope in Christ. May that hope shape our lives, brothers and sisters. Amen.